This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is August 25th, 2022. While other issues have taken center stage, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic have not gone away. The debate over the future of the office, that is, how and where we work, well, that's far from settled. But we do know this. The resolution will have a major impact on cities, companies, as well as investors. I had the opportunity earlier this week to moderate our own take on this debate with MSCI colleagues Jim Costello and Tom Leahy. Gentlemen, both Jim, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on actually our, what I hope is inaugural perspectives debate feature. So thank you for testing the waters with us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Before we dive into the topic at hand, though, just, you know, for the benefit of folks at home, I'd love for you each to introduce yourself just, you know, so briefly so we can understand why we're talking to both of you. Uh, Jim, let's start with you. Uh, Sure. I'm Jim Costello. I am in New York. I look at commercial property trends for the company and write stories about performance largely across uh, North America. Thanks, Jim. Great to have you here. Tom? Hi, everyone. Uh, Tom Leahy here from the MSCI office in the city of London. Uh, I head up real assets research uh, focusing on Europe. So my role is similar to Jim's, obviously with a European flavor and looking at how our data can illuminate what is happening in the real estate investment market. Thanks, Tom. Let's dive in, though. Quick, you know, just very easy question to answer to start with. In terms of office work and how the office is used, it's been about two and a half years since the first lockdown in developed world. Has the pandemic just changed the whole dynamic forever? Jim, let's start with you again. Starting with the easy ones. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. You know, I, I do get uncomfortable when somebody uses absolute language like that, that everything has changed forever. I don't think of it like that. I think of things in sort of grays. You know, there's degrees of change. The, the pandemic, I look at it as more something just accelerated some processes that were already in place. Go back to the 1950s, half of all financial sector employment in the United States was concentrated on the island of Manhattan. Over time, those jobs were leaving Manhattan because the introduction of high-tech like fax machines, you know, cheap long-distance phone calling, it allowed firms to move lower value-add activity to secondary and tertiary locations. And over time, that reduced the concentration of financial sector employment in Manhattan, spread out to up and coming markets like Charlotte, which used to be just a furniture headquarters and great barbecue, and now is kind of a secondary financial hub. I see this as just accelerating those kind of trends and keeping only the most high value add folks in these high uh, cost locations. But even even with that, let's say Charlotte, for example, has there been a shift about whether the folks there are still going into the office or are they working from home as well? There are more folks working from home in in every city than in the past. That comparison from Charlotte to New York Tom actually did something interesting early in the pandemic 
I don't know if you've repeated that in a bit, but he layered some of our transaction data against restrictiveness information from different cities and you know, the cities where there were tighter lockdowns, more stringent uh, conditions, uh, activity pulled back more, which makes sense because if I am looking to buy an office asset and I can't visit any brokers in that city because everybody is uh, stuck at home, then obviously you, know, you, can't, you can't do anything. But the cities that were more auto-focused, automobile-focused transit, and in the United States at least, have seen less of that kind of restriction and uh, lack of mobility because you, know, you didn't have the fear of getting on a crowded subway and having uh, exposure to a virus when you're in your own automobile. If I just interject that, uh, Jim, I mean, you, Adam, your question was, uh, as the kind of, you know, the workplace changed forever, which... I guess Jim and I would push back a little bit slightly because making those kind of absolute statements is tricky, you know. Who knows what's going to happen in 15 or 20 years' time? You know, you wouldn't have predicted, you know, there were people, Bill Gates, for example, was predicting the pandemic, but certainly those of us in the real estate industry, this kind of mass migration away from the office to home was not on our our radars three years ago, let's say. But I think the genie is sort of out of the bottle a little bit on this work-from-home trend. So if you look at the, and I know Jim has issues with survey data, but if you look at the survey data, there is a strong preference at the moment among employees for a hybrid model. It's almost as if in the in the space of a quite a short period of time, we've gone from working from home being some sort of privilege and actually viewed with a degree of skepticism by managers. I remember, I mean, it's probably more than 10 years ago now, which is dating me a little bit, but I was working from home in London, it must have been some sort of 2010 for various reasons for a, a few days. And uh, my colleagues, you know, my my contemporaries would send me periodic work test emails, which would be I'd have to reply to within five minutes to prove that I was working. But I think the pandemic has proved that you know businesses have been pretty productive. If you look at some of the academic literature, Nick Bloom at Stanford has done some research on this. People working from home can be just as productive as being in the office, perhaps even a little more productive. So I think it's it's going to be tricky to push push the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, because people have had a little bit of a taste of this autonomy that the flexibility that the pandemic has given us and what it feels like. Yeah, you know, I, Tom mentioned I am skeptical of surveys. I mean, surveys, you know, people will tell you that they want to lose weight and, you know, get in shape, but then they'll stuff their faces with donuts. So, you know, the intention Speak is yourself, one. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> My body's a temple. <laughs> well, uh, that gets into the other issue around surveys and expectations. It's like, you know, the you know, individual responses aren't necessarily representative, as in Tom's case. But the, the, this we've seen this behavior before where people say, oh, I don't want to do anything because of the situation and you know, limits behavior. After 9-11, there were a bunch of surveys showing nobody wants to go back to office towers and they don't want to go into that glamour space because they're afraid of what happens next with the next attack. Uh, sort of the uh, rank and file workers at, at firms. And, and you, know, you give it a few years, then suddenly leasing came back in these uh, towers and trophy locations because it became clear that there wasn't a next, a next attack coming. And what the behavior there 
it, it was a risk return trade-off that these people were were thinking about. They had an outside, they had an outsized view of the risk of another attack coming. The reward for them was minimal. If I'm an admin at a law firm, if I am in an office space that's on the top floor of the Sears Tower, I don't get any extra benefit from doing that. One of the partners does. For them, the risk-reward trade-off is greater to be there. But you know, that that faded over time, that that risk fear and eventually leasing return there. So with respect to the pandemic, you know, the risk return trade-off that people are facing, is there an extra risk? You know, in some areas there has been. You know, the if you if you believe everything in the New York Post, the uh, New York is a is a crime scene and nobody wants to come in. I, I think that's a little extreme, but there definitely are higher risks that people face. And clearly, you know, that impacts some of it. The reward for BNN is not as high as before either, because like Tom noted in the past, they'd be really cautious about that and worried and worried that that he was actually working. But there's less of that today for, from BNN for some folks. I, I think that from from the perspective of age cohorts, it probably matters different as well. Not every office worker is the same. Of different age groups, different skill sets, different functions, and you know some things. I, I think there will be benefits that uh, don't necessarily accrue to every office worker. Most senior people, they their job is to mentor folks and to teach, and sometimes they'll have a hard time doing that in a, a virtual session. Admin workers, do they get much benefit? personally or professionally from being around others? The answer to that is no, then maybe they do need to be uh, away from the office. But at the same time, if they're, if they're going to be away from the office, at some point, those jobs are not going to be in New York anymore. The fundamentals of just profit maximization for firms, some of that activity will be shifted to uh, developing countries' locations. I'm not convinced ab- about the risks that, that Jim mentions, essentially. I, th- I think, you know, New York is a, a particular case, but I think for the, certainly for the rest of the world, you know, certainly security concerns aren't, I don't think are as much of a, an issue, certainly not here in London, really. And similarly, I think, you know, you don't see many people wearing masks on the tube anymore. So I don't think there's a sense that, that people are being held back by fear of the virus, perhaps, in the way that perhaps they might have been 12 months ago. I think it's more about, it's the 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 sense of autonomy. Work is what you do, not where you are. So if you look at this, you know, again, survey data, for example, working from home is extremely popular with people with young children because it affords them flexibility that they wouldn't ordinarily have. So for work for a, a business that's trying to keep, let's say, working mothers involved and engaged, then this greater flexibility is a huge advantage in terms of keeping those people within the workforce. I think it can be a huge advantage to the employee, but also to the business as well, because if you're keeping your employees happy, then they'll want to stay with the business. You know, recruitment costs are pretty high. It's a very tight jobs market at the moment. So I view it as more of a win-win rather than a sort of a trade-off. I think Uh, I I do take, sorry, Jim, I do take your point though, that there are occasions when and periods in your career where you do need to be around other people. So 
you know, I'm not advocating a fully flexible model. Um, and I think this uh, the idea that, especially for younger people to be around others at the start of their career, I think is probably a benefit. Oh, sorry, I think Dan. you're making the point there, Tom, that, you know, for a family, uh, folks with young families, folks in their 30s with kids, the reward for them for being in the office is much lower because they've already gotten some skill sets that can do a job. They don't need to be as around as many people as in the past. You know, they've already been trained on whatever systems and the reward for them is much lower because then they've got this extra burden of childcare to worry about. So I think, I think you, you've outlined that, that reward issue, uh, uh, well with that, for that age group, that that's definitely an issue, but then think about it from the other perspective from firms, Firms do well when you get the externalities of all these smart people in one place sharing ideas and coming up with something that's greater than the individual parts. It's, you know, people talking to each other, the job becomes sort of interacting and mentoring and just coming up with new ideas that you wouldn't have done in isolation. Those things can be, those things can be, I don't think, and I, I, there's not much empirical data that supports the idea of like the the water cooler moment as being a big spur for innovation within businesses. Academics at Harvard Business School have done have, have studied this topic, and there's plenty of research out there that shows that this notion that serendipity is the mother of innovation, I don't think really holds true. Also, these are issues that you know, if you think about, okay, well, you need to be talking to your colleagues and discussing new projects and thinking about how you can work with each other and innovate. Those are things that can be done remotely. It's just you have to make more of an effort to build them into your day. Inside the firm, Tom, I think you're right that, you know, it's it's unclear how how people have been able to me- measure serendipity and sort of the interaction of, effect of, of people being around each other. At the city level, though, it's, there's been a clear measure of that. The cities with more density, the more potential interactions, the more churn have had higher rates of economic growth and higher growth and uh, productivity over over the years. And, and Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I completely can agree with that, do, Jim. I mean, yeah. the city of London grew in the in this as a financial center in the 17th century because of the arrival of the coffee house. So you had people drinking coffee in these coffee houses, reading the newspapers and or and discussing the news. And, and that's how, you know, you got the kind of the birth of modern commerce in, in London. And so it's, I certainly take that point on board and completely yeah. agree. Firms want to capture some of that. And, and to the extent they can get all those people, you know, using the office, working together, collaborating, it can be a benefit. I, I think, you're, you know, some of it can be done remotely. How much? How much can it be done as a remote team? That's where people, I think, are still experimenting. I do want to. I do want to move on to the impact on businesses um, and investors, you know, through the lens of of these big cities, which we've been talking about. I mean, here in New York, uh, the mayor, Mayor Adams, has said basically, get back to the office, get out of your pajamas. And part of the reason, or a big part of the reason, he's saying that is the effect on other businesses outside of people who are working in offices, but also investors in those office spaces. So I guess my question is, should investors be worried at all about the viability of commercial real estate in cities like New York 
and London or even Charlotte for that matter. Yeah, yes. I think they should, but I think <laughs> some I think I think the important caveat there is some of the real estate. Not all of it, but some of it. And you're seeing that borne out in our transaction numbers. So we're already seeing, certainly in Europe, uh, that offices are absorbing less of the investment capital than they were prior to the pandemic. So between sort of 2015 and 2019, the office market was about between sort of 41 and 43% of the total transaction volumes. Since the pandemic, it's been in the low 30s. Um, and so certainly buyers of real estate are voting with their feet, you know, so they're reallocating some of that capital away from the office market towards sectors they view as as being subject to more favorable trends, you know, whether that's the residential, the apartment sector or the industrial sectors, especially distribution warehouses. Let's say you do believe that folks just aren't going to come back to the office. You're going to have a much more distributed network of, of workers that does create a, a need for space to get together from time to time. You still need to have some sort of in-person get-togethers just for building team cohesion. If it's only virtual people, look at you know what the discussion boards look like with random strangers on the internet. Do you want that to be your firm? That's gonna create more need for whether some sort of clubhouse office space to get together for an event or hotels so that people could travel and meet their coworkers. So cities might change a little bit to adapt to that. That's going to be expensive. Somebody's going to take a loss in that kind of a situation, but the space could be used in different ways in the future uh, around that. Uh, but you know, again, though, I'm not totally convinced that it totally, that the need to be together in the office totally goes away. I mean, I do agree with Jim. I mean, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, playing the pro-hybrid uh, party here, but I, I am certainly in favor of, of being together with your colleagues. It's not the be all and end all, but I think it does facilitate then if, you, if you're remote work. So having met people in person, you know who they are, you have a chat with them, not just about work stuff, but about you know personal things. I think you see the other person as an individual, not just a face on the screen. I think that then facilitates future interactions. I've certainly seen that, for example, when I've traveled to Europe to speak to our client, you know, pre-pandemic, I would travel to Germany or France or Italy or the Nordics to speak to our clients there. And those face-to-face -face interactions then promoted a better relationship with these clients once you get back to London. But I do think the mindset of the, of the property owner and developer, it seems to be changing somewhat. There's a building near our office in, in the city of London that's being in the final stages of redevelopment and the advertising hoarding outside boasts of a building worth coming in for. So there's this sense that you have to create a space that your employees want to be in and so they, they enjoy being there. So it's worth that sacrifice of perhaps, you know, 45 minutes on a crowded train and a 10 minute walk at either end to come into the office, to be in a space that you like, where you feel appreciated, where you know, you can drink good coffee, perhaps there's a gym there, or if you cycle, there's all the amenities that go with that. See, um, Tom, you're, you're, make, you're making the point in. that they want those, you're making the point that they want those rewards to be in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was, you know, the, for some of the tech firms, that was one of the things that they would try to do to get people, even before the pandemic, have just incredible 
food spreads so that people didn't leave the campus. I was going to say, this started to sound a little bit like the dot-com days, where beyond just food, the the idea seemed to be make the office a place that you never wanted to leave, right? There were games there. You, some places you could even take a nap if you wanted. Um, could could that type of shift? Is that is that a, a place worth coming in for, to Tom's point about the building in London? No, that... I it, think I- it, Go ahead, Tom. I, I, I just can say, I think I do think it helps. I'm someone who wants to be in an environment that I feel kind of proud, almost kind of proud to be in. So, you know, for example, the, you know, the former RCA office in Jim and I joined MSCI through an acquisition of a business called Real Capital Analytics last year. And the RCA office in, in Manhattan was a great space. It was light and airy. So I think having somewhere that you want to be and want to spend time I think is an incentive. Equally, I've worked in offices before that have been a bit grotty, you know, a bit, you know, there were sort of scenes reminiscent of that sitcom, The Office. Jim, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's this issue of incentives. You know, the, the incentive to come into the office in the past, if it was only a salary, that's one thing. Uh, the tech firms, it was a very limited labor source that they had. And so they had to do, you know, provide all these extra amenities to uh, make people proud to be in and make them in the, the coolest environment so that they could kind of capture the labor. What about for those companies that that want to stay in the cities? I'm sorry, just getting back to uh, investor considerations a little bit. What what role does do new climate regulations or even just investor attention on that when they're evaluating either the existing inventory of, of commercial real estate office specifically, um, or, or new development for that matter. That's the issue. You know, when mayor Adams was talking about people need to get back to the office in New York, that's actually the issue much bigger, I think, than anything on the labor force side, because, uh, we have a New York local law 97 mandating all office buildings move towards net zero carbon footprints. Uh, that's going to be a huge investment that firms are going to have to undertake. Owners of buildings are going to have to undertake, and it's it's required. But you know, somebody's going to end up taking a loss on that because some of these buildings, just you know, older buildings especially, just aren't generating enough income to make that capital expenditure worthwhile. And that that uh, that transition is going to be a, a challenge. Yeah, and and so. Any shift to a hybrid model, which means that occupiers reduce their footprint, plays into that because the expectation is that the occupiers will concentrate in the better quality buildings that are centrally located. And so that already reduces tenant demand for buildings that aren't, that are already struggling perhaps because of some of these capex issues that they're facing. So I think the, the, the I think for property investors and owners, what is considered a minimum investable property in terms of its carbon reduction potential and its energy performance has shifted quite a lot. So the envelope has moved from being this being a sort of a nice to have probably even five years ago to for, for some of our clients to being an essential. If you look at our transaction price data from the database, even though relatively few office properties are trading, actually the price being paid these assets on average has gone up 
So in central London, there's very few offices trading, but the average of the price paid per square foot in Q2 of this year was the highest it's ever been because it's the better quality assets that are trading because those are the ones that the property owners want to add to their portfolios. Yeah, you know, and something like that, but just talking to folks in the industry in New York as I walk around the city, the uh, brand new building near Grand Central Terminal, one Vanderbilt, this building, they've been able to achieve $300 square foot rents, which is a high number for New York, and they're, they're fully leased. And part of it is just that attraction of quality. You know, there is that location benefit for the commuters coming in from the northern suburbs. That's just a convenient location inside Manhattan. But a modern building with all the best new modern features, it pays off. A lot of this conversation, guys, has been, you know, understandably so. We're talking about New York and London. I think everybody on the line right now is, is in one of those um, locations, at least on a permanent basis. Are we just are we just biased here? Is this a case of uh, the urban big city view? I'm, I'm thinking of an article that was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago talking about how this whole debate about back to work and and trouble with office real estate that's that's not happening in at least a lot of other cities and small towns in the U.S. Is is there a divide there? Are we just in a bubble? Well, let's also ask ourselves a question, you know, beyond Europe and North America, let's ask about Asia as well. Do they have the same types of discussion about back the office in Tokyo or in Seoul? Uh, and, you know, our colleagues there are, say that they're not seeing as much of it. In the United States, you have all these different areas you can move a business around to for some tax advantages. And that's something that we've seen a long run trend of firms doing that move the lower value add stuff out of cities into these secondary and tertiary locations. Uh, Asia, you, know, you just don't have that opportunity set in the same way. Yeah, um, if you look uh, at, sorry, Jim, just to interject there, if you look yeah. at the, the Google mobility numbers, so uh, there's an open source data set that you can find that look at uh, visits to workplaces and they benchmark those against pre, a pre-pandemic baseline. Um, in, let's say, Singapore and Japan, for example, visits to workplaces are basically back slightly down on their pre-pandemic baseline, but within 5% on average. Whereas if you look at uh, London, it's down at between, you know, between 25 and 30% down on those pre-pandemic baselines, and even more so in New York. So there is definitely a difference. And I think we can be a little bit Western-centric, perhaps, in our discussions and focus a lot on what's happening in, in Europe and North America. And so that the pandemic has not had a bigger, as big an impact on some of these countries as they have, they have had elsewhere, you know, where we had, you know, if you look in the, the length of the lockdowns, I think, in places like London and New York meant that people were working at home for longer periods. And so I think that has had a, a greater impact on people's expectations about working from home over the longer term. Now, we only have uh, about about five minutes left, and we could keep talking about this, I think, for much longer. But I would just like to end uh, a little more personal note since this conversation, as you've both brought out, regardless of which side you fall on, does sort of come back to how old you are, where you are, stage of life, raising kids, etc. So 
just a, a little layup to end with. Uh, Tom, let's start with you. If if you had to choose, if MSCI said right now, permanently work from home or permanently go to the office, no hybrid, what would you choose? They made me choose. <laughs> maybe I'd, I'd go to another business that didn't make me choose maybe um gosh that's a tricky one that really is a tricky one i mean i spent obviously spent the vast majority of my working life in an office building um and i've got on okay there so i despite myself and really it is despite myself i might be tempted to to shift towards the office you know i like working at home but i certainly don't like working at home full time jim yeah, you know, the a couple couple different threads on this. Uh, if I had to work in my own home office as opposed to the company's office, well, then in a sense, that's the company imposing a cost on me because now I have to get an extra bedroom in New York. So, and that's expensive, right? But fundamentally, though, I would pick the office. But when I say that, it's not full-time in the office, nonetheless. Tom talked about in 2010 how we worked from home from a bit and people were suspicious of that uh you know i think back to 2010 for me i was in the office then maybe three days a week and that's been my life since 2010 even full-time in the office back in the day i was never in the office full-time because i was traveling seeing clients engaging with folks so i always was kind of a hybrid worker i had the need for the space to to have that base of operations to go back to but i wasn't using it constantly and sometimes I would end up doing some work from home. I'd be coming in on a flight and rather than head in from the airport to the office, I'd just you know, do a little bit of work in the afternoon at home. So those types of uh, use space, uh, I'm happy to be in the office still if I can still be that flexible in that sense. Fair enough. I should have known uh, you would each take it a little further than, uh, than the original intent. Um, before we sign off, I want to just throw out one more chance. Any closing thoughts? I think about it in the reflection of what Tom had been saying about people checking in on him. That's not the good way to run a business. You know, thinking that people have to be in the office just to make sure that they're working. Uh, you know, this isn't, we're not in the 19th century in Lowell, Massachusetts at a wool mill where children were chained to a machine to make sure they kept working. If firms just need to be able to hire the right people, incentivize them properly, and then hold them accountable for results. That's what's needed. To the extent that an office can help in that process, it could be a benefit to a firm moving forward. I think it can help in that process, not in the sense of holding them accountable, but in terms of giving them the incentives, giving them the ability to be around other smart people and interact with them, it's a valuable thing. And then there's things that can grow from that. Yeah, quite. Uh, so good point, Jim. Uh, I think I've got two two final points. Uh, the first thing to say is, and I think those of us in the real estate industry forget that actually office costs are a fraction of wage costs for employers, for those in the knowledge economy. And so to the extent that the, the office is there to provide a place for work and to keep employees happy. So I think that's something to bear in mind that, that businesses will do what's right for their employees and, and shape their office occupancy and their office portfolios accordingly. Uh, and the second thing, and I, 
this has kind of come out in what we've been discussing is, is that we're not quite in the eye of the storm, but we're only just coming out the other side of it. And so it's, it's still quite difficult to say where the dust is going to settle um, because these decisions are being made at the moment by office occupiers. And so those decisions being made by the occupiers will determine the fortunes of the transaction market and the investment market. And so while that dust is still settling, it's quite tricky to say, well, we think this is how it's going to be in five or 10 years time because, you know, other events can come along and change things completely. And that's fair and try, uh, brings us back to sort of where we started, which is we will continue to watch the data. We will see what happens here. And to, I think it was Jim's early point, no one saw the pandemic coming, right? So who's to say what's next? Jim and Tom, thank you both so much for a, a spirited discussion. Um, I wish we had more time, and I hope that you'll both come back on the program as as the events unfold. Thank you much. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Adam. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Jim and Tom, and to all of you for listening. As you know, we love feedback. So why not leave a rating and... Let us know what you thought of this format and if you'd like to hear more debate on the program. In either case, we'll see you in September with a brand new episode. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.